0: Welcome to the Small Groups in the Wesleyan Way podcast where we are all about going beyond programs, beyond best practices, and beyond curriculum to recover and learn from our Wesleyan roots and to explore the foundations for small groups that produce disciples of Jesus Christ who in turn disciple others. My name is Scott Hughes and I am the Director of Adult Discipleship here at Discipleship Ministries.
1: And I'm Steve Matskar, Director of Wesleyan Leadership. At Discipleship Ministries. And we
0: are both sad because bra- uh, baseball playoffs are going on and neither of our teams are in it.
1: That is very true. And the Yankees
0: are in it. <laughs>
1: Ooh. I, I am becoming a... Uh, um, actually, I, I always have been, but particularly this... For the next several weeks, I am now a Dodgers fan.
0: Oh, Okay. There you go. we Heard it here first. So, Breaking news. You know, I'm Steve's sorry for my—I know fan. I
1: have lots of friends who are Cubs fans, so and I, I sympathize with them.
0: Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well—
1: I've it, also got a lot of friends who are Dodgers fans, so—and anyway.
0: And I have no friends, so— <laughs> <laughs> teasing,
1: but and that being said, I would love to see an Astro, the Astros, win a World Series. Oh, so well, here we go. so. Maybe it's a so. complicated. It's this is a complicated time of year season. for you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's uh, also closing in on one of the saddest days of the year, which is the last game of the World Series.
0: Ah, then what? Like a hundred and something days and until pitchers no and catchers.
1: Until spring training in February.
0: All right, that's true. There hasn't been any baseball in Atlanta for a couple years now. (laughs) (laughs) All right, enough of that. Uh, So, in this episode, we are um, excited to have the opportunity to have interviewed um, the pastors at St. Francis United Methodist Church in Cary, North Carolina. The lead pastor is uh, Reverend Donna Banks, and the associate is Cameron Merrill. Uh, They do something rather interesting at this church called Common Table. Uh, Common table groups, and so uh, we're going to just turn it right over to the interview where you can hear more about that. Well, Donna and Cameron, thank you so much for joining us on the Sm- we- Small Groups in the Wesleyan Way podcast. Um, I have a couple questions for you. We're we're so excited that you are able to join us. We're excited about what's happening there at Saint Francis United Methodist Church in Cary, North Carolina, and excited to hear from y'all. And um, and so. Lead Pastor Donna Banks. I want to begin with you and just let you share about why small groups are important, why it gets your attention, and and, um, how you've continued to be a champion for small groups in your church.
2: Um, Thank you, Scott. It has been, as we think about small groups and we think about discipleship, we're called to make disciples for the transformation of the world. But I can honestly say, we're not real good at being disciples. We have failed to be disciples, so it makes it more difficult for us to go out and make disciples. And We went through a period of time as I was coming out of seminary and going into my first appointment where we always talked about getting people in small groups, getting people in small groups, and come to find out that we were having difficulty with uh, having people raise their hand and say, I want to be a part of a small group. I want to engage in this process of... Of life together. I also had the opportunity of sitting with Mike Green and going through the process of uh, 3DM and learning their process of missional communities and life together. And, you know, small groups was one way of doing it. Life together was another way, but there was still something missing. There was still something missing from that process. Um, as I went through my appointments, I did a stint on the cabinet. It came with, I had an opportunity to sit with um, Doug Anderson and Doug Anderson helped me to see that, you know, one thing we do with small groups is that we put people in small groups forever. And most of the time they will blow up after about between three to four years. And we never think about that. Those dynamics will change in order that other people might want to become a part of the group or other people need to transition out of the group. One other thing that he helped us to see was that uh, when we were organizing small groups, we needed to do it more than just one time. We needed to do it at least a couple of times a year in order that people could transition out and people could transition in. And it was based on time that we would make those times available for people to transition in. If it was Monday at 6 p.m. or it was Wednesday at noon or it was Sunday afternoon, we put together times with leaders and allow people to, designate being a part of a group based on the times that they were available. And with that, uh, Cameron, when I came to St. Francis, Cameron was a big proponent of small groups and had had the opportunity to lead some. And so he and I came together and decided what it needed to look like, what were some of the key things that it needed to entail. And that one key thing I think that we came together on was that they needed to be able to do a mission together besides doing life together, they needed to do a mission together that connected their discipleship with reaching out to the community. And I believe that was the connecting point for us in moving forward with our common tables. And since Cameron had been a part of doing that at his previous um, uh, uh, appointment, we let him take the lead on that as we moved forward with uh, common tables here at St. Francis.
0: All right. Well, Cameron, that, that's a good intro into Common Tables. Why don't you tell us a little more what they are, how they might be distinct from a, a small group in general?
3: Sure. So um, when we were thinking of, uh, of a framework um, to introduce Common Tables to the congregation, we, we started with a Lenten uh, sermon series and, and really actually kind of backed it out of, of uh, Christine Pohl's work on the marks of community. And so we spent that series kind of talking about what what are the distinctive characteristics and marks uh, of community. And we, we kept it to four. We, um, we talked about uh, making and keeping promises, fidelity. Uh, we talked about practices of gratitude. Uh, we talked, to, talked about practices of truth telling, so telling our stories and receiving the stories of others. Um, and then we talked about practices of hospitality that, that communities are marked by hospitality. And then we, uh, wove together four practices that aligned with those, uh, with those marks. So each common table gets together, uh, weekly for the most part, we've had some that have really fought the week, the weekly, uh, okay. <laughs> the weekly commitment, sure. but for the most part, at least every other week and they, they eat together. Um, they, uh, they search scripture together. We've been very clear about that language. Now it's not a Bible study. It's it's learning to search and listen to scripture together. Uh, they pray together. Uh, they give thanks together. And they serve together. And so those have been... So Fidelity for Common Table is promising to show up and actually doing it. Um, and saying, you know, I, we're committing to doing this weekly and I'm actually going to be there. Unless there's a really good reason. Like I'm physically out of the state. you know. Um, Telling the, the truth, telling is they start the, the first few months. They start out by telling one another their stories, kind of how we, we have these three guiding questions to help get them used to telling. Uh, and they're all the questions are all oriented around table language. You know, how did you, what did your table look? Who was around your table growing up? Uh, what was one challenge or one difficult moment that happened around your family table? And how did you all talk about that? Uh, and then how did you come to this table? How did you come to St. Francis? So those are the three questions. So they they get used to telling one another their stories and receiving the stories of others. Um, they pray together. We give them tools for that. They give thanks together. So we, we encourage them to spend some time each time specifically, you know, and and one of my favorite things that's happened with our common tables have been the tables that have a lot of kids. They uh, The kids maybe scatter out, off for some of the the searching scripture conversation. Maybe they don't, but, they all bring them back together for the giving thanks and praying together. So their kids really get to experience, you know, what are you thankful for this week? And, and being able to be included. And then as Donna said, the, the serving together, which we've encouraged most tables to find ways to serve, uh, to serve together four to six times a year, depending on schedules and what they're doing and, and that sort of thing. Um, so those, you know, those are the practices that align, align them with the marks that we've named uh, as signs of community. That's that's how they
0: live that together. Yeah, very helpful, Cameron. I know Steve's got some questions, so I'm going to let Steve go for it.
1: Um, Well, I'm just um, fascinated by the description that you just gave of the uh, the common tables. And just, I'll say if I lived in that area, that's the church I would go to, um, would want to be a part of. Um, And I love the way that, you know, it's very intentional around Mm -hmm. those practices of community that I think pretty much reflect the practices of the early church. Um, And as a way of bringing people together and building relationships among the members of and because that's what discipleship is ultimately all about relationships is that um, right. we experience the grace of God the love of Christ through the relationships of the people that God gives to us by virtue of our baptism um, and so you guys have done a really I think wonderful job of helping people to live out their baptism in this way um, so a, a question that just comes to mind, and I ask this of everybody, every congregation, is, um, do, well, is do you have, does um, St. Francis have a, a rule of life that shapes um, the life of the congregation, and in particular, the common tables, that is part of the life of the common table? You know, and I asked that because it sounds like you know you've got these basic these practices. Um, and I wonder if you've if you have a rule of life, if you could describe what that is, if not, um, well, uh, let's stop there. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if I was to think about a rule of life, I think everything i think I think we've come to terms that everything we do is usually, Basically connected to the Eucharistic table, the uh, Lord's table, and you know eating together we're taking that from eating together as as a principle of our common tables as well as when we come to the table and are receive the grace of God through the bread and the cup and um, I would I would say that was probably our general rule of life is that everything kind of flows through that um, uh, how we uh, are called to offer grace to each other as we receive from that in order that we might give that to others, uh, as we are called to um, to continue to live that out in our daily lives with our families as they come to the table, as we offer grace at the table, as we offer uh, an opportunity for us to um, learn how to love, how to care, how to be compassionate, all that's done. That's kind of, goes through that Eucharistic or Holy Communion. So I would believe that I would say that that would be our, our kind of rule of life uh, here at St. Francis. St. Francis has always been a church that has served communion every Sunday for the last 35 years in one service or another. Uh, Now we do it every service uh, at every service, every Sunday. And so we, we live that out in a way that's, that people can point to. If, if, if I understand it correctly, they used to serve wine and they had to be told uh, to stop. Uh, oh my. <laughs> and if you can tell by St. Francis as well that, that, you know, most people who come here will probably think it's a Catholic church. And they come here and are part of this congregation and find out that we have some traditions that are very connected to St. Francis as well that allows us to live out our lives through that table, as well as to serve in our community.
0: That definitely sounds like a church you'd show up for.
1: Well, yeah. And, <laughs> and, and actually, there, I mean, there is no to make a move there, there it, is no, to no prohibition against the use of wine in United Methodist Eucharist. I know. So, um, Interesting. <laughs> I, I did Again, not know they had to be there, told there was they had at one stop. point, but it, it, it went away a long time ago. Um, yes. Yeah. Now you know it was uh,
3: explicitly um, forbidden for by the discipline at the time. So that was, yeah,
1: it uh, was, but it, it has been removed, and the, the, yeah. that so that so you're free to go back. <laughs> <so,
3: Yeah>, yeah. <laughs> every once in a while, someone will kind of ask the question of uh, so when so when are we going to bring back the good stuff? So,
1: <laughs> like, I'd encourage you to to start moving in that direction because <laughs> you know I, seriously, I, I tell people. You know, in the work that I do, when it comes up, you know, I I certainly advocate the weekly celebration of the Eucharist. That that yeah. that's that's the norm of Christian worship. And and I tell people that Mr. Wesley would be appalled at the way most United Methodists practice the sacrament. Mm. And he would be appalled for for at least two reasons. One, you only do it once a month. Yeah. When there's, in most cases, there's no good reason for that. And the other is you serve grape juice. Um, Mr. Wesley would insist that wine be Interesting. the norm. That maybe offer grape juice for those who prefer it, but maybe, you know, I remember at at Wesley Theological Seminary, which is where I did my MDiv and DMIN, they have weekly Eucharist, and they offer two cups.
0: Oh, interesting. Uh,
1: The pulpit side has wine. The lectern side has juice. Interesting.
0: all right, so I'm, I'm going to bring us back to small groups. Well, go ahead. Can, can I just
1: want? Um, I, I love one of the the aspects of the common table that I'd like to hear more about is that the serving that you encourage yeah. them to be in service. I'm assuming service somehow in the community yeah. beyond the church. Is that correct? Yeah. How does that happen? Do you do they find that determine that themselves? Do you guide them in that?
3: Sure. That's actually I, and I will say that's been um, that's been one of the more difficult aspects yeah. for for several reasons I think, uh, and this goes back to the the point about uh, common tables as a small group uh, and as a practice of living out our baptismal identity. I think we recognize now mm. in the life of the church more broadly that the scale at which we we ask people to live out their baptismal identity is often um, too cumbersome or too you know, so, uh, like some missional activity, for instance, often happens on the scale of an entire congregation. Right. And uh, that means that we're either having to look for missional activities that an entire congregation could potentially be involved in, or we're having to do fewer of them, or they're happening at times where most of the congregation can't be involved with them. You know, and so uh, by by backing it down and shrinking it in some ways to the to the scope of a group of eight to 12 people, it's a lot more manageable. So what we've done is um, we've made it a very clear expectation of the common tables and then we've we've made it very clear to them that uh, to the to the leaders especially we want this to be a conversation that you all have very early and very quickly about are there uh, and we've we've done several things as far as to give them a context for it um, you know it's a Uh, We've used like Matthew 25 language, sort of those buckets of, you know, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you cared for me. So we've kind of used that language. We've, we've done several things, but some of the tables have a lot of success at they've either, they've either come together in some ways because of a common identity and a common thing, or uh, they just naturally find themselves predilected towards a particular service activity. We've got one group that's made up largely of members of our community garden here at the church. And so they do a lot more work with the community garden together, but they also, they do a lot of food oriented ministry. It just, that's just something that they do, they know. Others uh, who, especially who are relatively new to the church and to missional work, we've had to kind of give them some taste and see opportunities using our existing missional relationships. So, you know, we might say, Hey, look, you know, if you guys would like to serve with the, with the soup kitchen downtown that we work with, you know, we can coordinate a date for that. And then we also have a congregational wide great day of service, which is very much intended to be a, a come and taste and see and it's built around the relationships we already have as a congregation missionally and we always we have hope and we've seen some success with with groups finding oh you know we we served with urban ministries and we really loved hearing what they did and what they do and so now we want to go work with them regularly so it's been a it's been a kind of a hodgepodge of different techniques and and mechanisms um, but it still is a scheduling nightmare too for a lot yeah. of tables, you know, with young families, with kids who have very dramatic schedules, you know, so the finding time to serve together has been a significant hurdle for a lot, but it, it was already a hurdle on a congregational wide scale. It was, it, yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's still been a, a hurdle for people on a smaller scale.
2: I think the beauty of, of, of it all is that I think the, another difficulty is that you've got diff, you've got children in different ages in a yeah. group that's the beauty of it all you've got right. you've got people who are single you've got people who are who have don't have any children or who are, are the children of empty, nesters, empty yeah. nesters as well as people who have children and that's the beauty of having mm-hmm. fairly mixed groups but when you're doing a mission together that causes some issues as far as how that's going to be played out and um, Cameron has been working with one of our other leaders who's in one of the groups to help them find missions or to help them uh schedule. So we've put someone kind of in charge of that so yeah. that neither one of us have to do that. Solely. Yeah. Solely, yeah. But finding someone who has the gifts and graces to be able to help those teams uh those those tables find missions that they might want to do together and or to continue to do going forward.
0: Great. Well I really appreciate y'all sharing the, the challenges, right? It's not just always about success stories, but it's also the challenges you have and I appreciate that. Um, I'd I'd like to ask how many people or what percentage perhaps of the church is able to be in common table groups and how do you motivate them? How do you motivate them to get into groups? Yeah.
3: (laughs) Right now we have about 10 active common tables Um, and and our, our active, uh, our active membership uh, or active kind of congregational population right now is around between 500 and 550 people. Meaning that like in any given month we see about, we have some level of contact with about that many people. And so um, about a fifth of our, of our congregation now, two years in mm-hmm. is, uh, is you know, we're in our second year of comma tables basically. So about a fifth of the congregation is currently involved in the tables. And I would say a pretty significant proportion of our leadership mm-hmm. um, are members of a comma table. Um, and creating a hunger, so you know, the, the Lenten sermon series really did help. And we had a we had a mission, we had a, a launch dinner right after that uh, initial conversation. We're actually gonna try something new this year. So the, the biggest, I mean, the, the biggest impetus for people wanting to be a part of a common table really has very little to do with with Donna and I. No. It really comes from people. Per, yeah, people who are currently in a common table telling other ah. people like how much it's meant to them. Yeah. And, and and my favorite stories are the ones of the people who are really surprised at how much it's meant to them. <laughs> You know, and so they, they can really honestly say, you know, like I didn't think this was going to be as big of a deal as it is, but when it doesn't happen, I really miss it. And here's why. And uh, we have a lot, we have several tables that have a lot of younger newer families to the church. And this is a totally new thing for them. And all of them comment about how big of a deal their, their tables are. Um, So this year we're going to be, we're going to be doing an Advent study together. Um, We're going to have dinner hosted here at the church. We're going to have our current common tables come and we're going to work it like a normal common table. Ah uh, gathering like a but then invite man. the wider congregation who may not currently be a part to also come and sit around those tables and experience both an advent study and conversation, but also what common table life looks like in a ah. less maybe a less imposing manner, and then hopefully launch new tables after the first of the year. So we're going to try that out and see if that's another another way to sort of kick kick up uh interest.
0: That's great. Yeah, that's really good. Um, Steve, you have any other questions i've got I've got one more. You got any? No, you take it. I, All right, I'd, I'm just curious because uh, y'all have done such a great job, and I'm just I want to kind of give you a, a minute or so each just to say um, anything else you want to say about helping church members, um, helping those you're in contact with to live out their baptismal vows. Mm. Ha- and then I'm just going to leave it there. I'm just going to kind of let you go. You got about a minute each. Um, what would you say to help other churches to be intentional about helping their members to live out their baptismal vows?
2: You know, I think the best part that that they can do that is, is start small. Don't expect it to be a large, big initiative. Uh, when we launched our first common tables, it was five tables. And with the expectation is that we would draw, draw leaders from those tables to start new tables. And so even if a pastor starts with a table of their own and then move out and you let those people go out and start and invite people in, then start just start somewhere and find a group of people and then allow it to naturally continue to move and 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 train and move those people out and let them organically start new tables because when you try to try too hard to make it a church wide initiative it usually falls on its face but if you could if you're intentional about continuing the work of discipleship and living out your baptism which we are called to do then you just continue to move it forward with the initiative that you've laid out, and allow it to continue to grow um, within the within the body of Christ.
0: Cameron, what
3: would you add? I would say too. I think one of the things that we we sort of knew, but um, and we we were hopeful for, but didn't didn't uh, plan on necessarily was maximizing. Where, where small group work is already happening and helping them mm. transition to something a little richer and deeper. So yeah. it feels like you know most of Sunday school today in most churches are small groups that have been going for a long time and no one has told them that that's what they are. And so uh, we had a couple, we had two or three small groups that were already gathering that yeah. were not doing everything we've identified necessarily as being a part of a common table, but we could go to them and they were very amenable. And, and some of them even came to us after a little while and said, how can we, how can we do something richer together? And, um, that was a huge help, I think, in overcoming some of the frustration we have with some of those older models of small group ministry. Uh, it didn't, it didn't feel like a competition. It felt like a a healthy transition. And so learning how to maximize where small groups are already working, I think would be a huge, a huge encouragement because they are, they really are.
0: Yeah, that's important. That's, that's really helpful. And so I, Donna and Cameron, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate all that you're doing. I know you're going to be helpful to so many people. So so thanks.
1: You're welcome. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you very much. This is wonderful. Yeah,
2: thank you. thank you.
0: Well, I really appreciated both Donna and Cameron and what they had to say. Um, both have a lot, a lot of experience, a lot of unique experiences. Um, Cameron was actually an aerospace engineer. Fun fact for you there. And Donna was a district superintendent before her current appointment. And so, uh, like I said, they bring a lot of experience. And I heard a lot of really interesting things. And so let's pick out a few things that uh, sort of piqued our interest in what what they had to say. Do you want to start off with some things that piqued your interest? I know there were a few.
1: Yes, there are a few. Um, the first one, I loved what Donna, uh, I'm pretty, yeah, it was Donna who talked about that she recognized the important, you know early in her ministry she recognized the importance of discipleship yeah yeah and of develop and how they're intentionally develop have developed a discipling culture yeah at um St. Francis and that's well like I said in the interview if I lived in Kerry I would be there yeah <laughs> Um, because of that, and the fact that they have the Euc- they celebrate the Eucharist every Sunday.
0: Yep, that's true. And so
1: that and that's the 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 other piece that really, uh, you know, when I asked about do you have a rule of life, mm-hmm. um, I th- I think I kind of stumped them very briefly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cause, and I expect you know I because, but I like the way Donna. You know, as she thought about it, you know, sort mm-hmm. of talked her, she talked her way to this. That's right. As she reflected, you know, she's, I suspect she's an extrovert, which means, you know, she, she thinks out loud. which mm-hmm. I can see that. Um, and, and so as I listened to her think out loud about my question, she settled on that the Eucharistic prayer is really the, cult, the, the, the rule of life of of yeah. Saint Francis Church, and um, from from what I heard them say, I said I think there's something to that. Yeah. Um, okay. And it's, and it's worth exploring some more. I think uh-huh. to that the, the Eucharistic prayer could be a rule of life for, um, in some ways, a rule of life for uh, for congregations. Um, the other things that sort of j- jumped out at me that they said, you know, the practical stuff was to, to st- and I think Donna also said this is start small.
0: Yeah, I think that's really helpful.
1: Um, it's often a mis- you know it's it's unrealistic to think that you're going to get everyone in the congregation yeah. in a group like even a common table. Yeah, they have a significant proportion of the congregation. Yeah, but I think in this kind of you know discipling culture, the people who and that that's related to the next thing that she said was and I will actually think maybe you said this, Scott, and she agreed that okay. you know, reach the people who want to do what you're doing. Yeah, you know? yeah. Start there. Start there. Yeah. Um, and when you're, you know, develop, you know a, a discipling culture is really going to be, the people are going to be actively participating mm-hmm. in it week after week after week are always going to be a minority of the congregation. Yeah. Um, but they're the people that you need. Right, And they're the ones that are going to be, you know, from that group are going to emerge your leaders yeah. who can then serve and encourage the rest of the congregation yep. in their discipleship and whatever level that discipleship is for, for, for the majority of the congregation. <clears throat> so it's those things, the, the Eucharistic prayer is the rule of life, hmm. starting small, yep. you being, you know, that's smart.
0: Yeah, good strategy. Um,
1: practical and um, and working with the people who want to work with you.
0: Yeah, that that piece of motivation and, and sort of after we'd hit the – stop the recording, we had more conversation and that was certainly – some questions I had for them further was, how do you motivate people? And it's really tough to motivate folks. And part of it is because of time. And they mentioned that, right? The challenge of people's busy schedules. How do right, you get people the in? suburban culture. Yeah, and that was the other part that, that Cameron said that I thought was really interesting. And we had more conversation about it, about people yearn for community, but also fear community. And then he went on to say, we yearn for vulnerability, but we also fear vulnerability. Yeah. And that's, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and that's it's definitely something we're always going to have a challenge with in getting people in small groups. And the more we can recognize it, the better. The other thing that I'd like to, to point out was uh, how they have those guiding questions to help people tell their stories. And most adults, we've learned, don't have a place to practice telling their story. Mm, yeah. And in some of the conversation afterwards, again, he, he talked about how the more they've done that, the more they feel comfortable and they're getting to a place to where they're going to begin to be witnesses, right? Because right. they practiced yeah. and practiced their story, it becomes more natural and yeah. they can, they can really live out that part of the baptismal vow being a witness because of those intentional times of practicing, telling their story. Yeah. So that's really, really important. that's something that I, I really took away from, from our interview. Anything else, any other gems?
1: Um, no.
0: Okay, that's, that's good. That's yeah, for me. That was really good. So uh, I hope you all learned I, a lot. Yeah, and I,
1: I hope we, we keep in touch with these yeah. folks and talk to them. I think we have more to talk to or talk with them about.
0: Yeah, I think um, so too. And I so think too. we
1: can learn from them.
0: Yeah, and I would would encourage our listeners to do that as well. They said they were open to that, so you can get in touch with with the both of them. And, of course, uh, we hoped you would get in touch with us as well. You can find our email addresses on our website, umcdiscipleship.org. You can also find us on the Twitters. You can find me at Rev Scott's Tweets and also at UMC Adult Forum for adult formation.
1: And you can find me on Twitter at At S Manskar, at S-M-A-N-S-K-A-R.
0: So we look forward to interacting with you. So please uh, email us, tweet us your questions, your comments, so that we can continue to produce these podcasts in ways that are helpful for you. So until next time, peace.
1: Small Groups in the Wesleyan Way podcast has been a production of Discipleship Ministries, an agency of the United Methodist Church. Visit all our podcasts
3: at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.